The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Today, we're going to be talking about coaching and mentoring. Now, every time I speak with talented, up-and-coming stars, or really anyone looking to take control of his or her career, there's always a request for a mentor. How do I get a mentor? As a result, demands for mentoring are going up dramatically. But most of the companies rely on the same handful of people to be a part of every mentoring program. What if we could train managers to be more effective coaches and mentors all the time, not just for special events? And what if those managers could quickly master those skills? And what if coaching and mentoring became business as usual? I think, and I think many others agree, that we'd have a much more engaged employees, better performance all the way around. And as my guest today knows, if you want to make large-scale change happen, you have to mentor and coach. So that's our focus. How do you mentor and coach as a manager, even as a good colleague? So with me today is Julie Starr. Julie is an expert and a thought leader in the field of coaching and mentoring. She has several books. The Coaching Manual First has become required reading for people training to be coaches. In addition, she has Brilliant Coaching and the Mentoring mentoring Manual. And as if that isn't enough, there's actually books for young adults that are fabulous. We're going to talk about those later in the show. So, Julie, welcome. Thank you. Wonder it's so lovely to be on the show. It's a really exciting premise that you've just described for this show. So I'm very, very excited to be part of it. All right. Delighted to have you. And I am keen to hear what you have to say about this. So let's start with this whole concept of mentoring, and then we'll go to coaching later. But let's start with mentoring. You say that mentoring is all around us. Explain what you mean. Um, yeah. If you, if you look at your, you know, your childhood, your upbringing, even you know, your work occupations now, there are people around you with whom you probably have some affinity, some feeling of respect towards people that you watch, people that you look towards, that materially affect how you think, how you operate in the world. And I think, you know, even in, in film and fiction and fable, the, the, the archetype of a mentor is all around us, whether it's um, Gandalf or whether it's Professor Dumbledore or Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. I think, you know, we have these these relationships that get it set up in storylines that we can clearly see that person is having a, a mentoring impact on on the other person. So yeah, I I think we look we look kind of over there for something that's actually in our own surroundings, whether it's um 
an old family friend, whether it's a favourite school teacher, whether it's somebody that you used to work with that you now keep in touch with, just because of the quality of the conversations you have with them or the impact they have on you. Um, I, I think I think very often, you know, very often we're looking we're looking somewhere else for what's actually in front of our our very noses sometimes. It's interesting because I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people who are mentors to us, but they're never officially, formally yeah. labeled as a mentor, but they still serve a mentoring purpose. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you talk about archetypes like Gandalf, Professor Dumbledore, Mr. Miyagi, and the Karate yeah. Kid. Um, is there a single archetype for a mentor, or are there several different types? I think essentially they come in very different guises and very different cloaks and appearances and clothing, very definitely. And yet, there is something essentially true about the function of that relationship and that role, and it's something that serves to empower us, something that serves to have us uh, think more philosophically about ourselves or our situations and circumstances, and, the, and that's something that creates progress in, in, a, in, a, in a constructive direction. So we talk about, when we work with mentors, we talk about providing appropriate assistance in situations, and that can be, be very, very different things, whether that be skills training or advice or sometimes even stepping back, you know, doing nothing in a situation. So, yes, in appearance, they can look a bit like shapeshifters in that sense, and essentially um, the, core, the core intention and purpose feels similar. Okay. So then basically they show up in our lives in very different formats, different disguises, as you've said, but there is something about the quality uh, and the nature of the interaction that is pretty mm. much the same. So yeah. let me ask a crazy it's question. Something about the impact. You know, if you think about the people in your formative years, and, and even, in, you know, when you, when you first started your career, the people that had the real impact on you. I think what you'll notice is there's a, there's, there tends to be an exchange of respect from ourselves to the people that we look to and perhaps benevolence from them towards us and that creates this affinity of trust or, uh, you know, some kind of energetic exchange that feels very productive. It, it shapes the way we think. It shapes the way we act. It shapes the way we view our circumstances and indeed life. And if you, you know, if you ask those questions for yourself, who's had the major influence on, on how I see the world and, and you know, what were those formative milestones, those junctions in my own journey where we think, okay, that was a pivotal relationship for me or that manager or that school teacher or that family friend, whoever it might be, um, that's the way to reveal these, these, these relationships, I think. Okay. All right, fabulous. So, as you just as you said that, it reminds me uh, frequently when we interview leaders, they will say that their most formative experiences was the worst boss they ever had because you know what not to do. Presumably, you're talking about a positive role model or a positive influence, not the negative kind, as a mentor. Well, I think you make a good point, and and the point is that some mentors are kind of. Look like anti mentors, kind of anti heroes in our journey, and and I'm kind of referring to the Joseph Campbell, you know, hero's journey um, metaphor. Some some people look like they turn up as as villains or people that show us exactly how we don't want to be, and yet isn't that formative to us? So you reminded me of a of a manager that I had that wanted me to be very tough with people, very critical 
drive very harsh lines in terms of performance and behavior. And even though I was following his lead and, and complying sometimes in, in terms of the tone and approach that I took to some of the staff involved, there was a point at which I was pushed beyond my own limit and I knew definitively that it wasn't me to do that. So yes, I think, I think those, those, um, characters form a very useful mentoring, um, impact on us. And, and I think it's, it's probably useful when people start to be disappointed sometimes with the mentors that they've been assigned to, to look at every, you know, this principle and work from this principle that everybody provides us with something. Um, it's a, it's, it's a matter of what view, what pair of glasses you put on when you start to look at the behaviors that you, that you disapprove of. So rather than going up against them or going toe-to-toe with those individuals, sometimes it's just useful to sit and inquire for a, a while longer and think, what am I learning from this? What's in this for me? Why is this, why is this perfect that this person's shown up? Okay. All right, I want to go back to the film notion. I like that idea that um, everyone supplies something. Uh, mm. And it's a matter of me focusing on what is I'm learning from this person and taking the constructive out of that, not the necessarily negative out of that. Let's go back to this notion of film. I'm intrigued with the uh, karate kid, Mr. Miyagi, uh, <laughs> and his role there. And as I recall this film, he has the kid, you know, wa- waxing on and waxing off or wax on yes. and wipe off, yes. which is ultimately the karate motion he's going to need. But the kid yeah. gets kind of frustrated with the lessons. Is that pretty typical for a mentor, that you get frustrated with their guidance, if you will? I think it's lovely that you pull that moment out, because there are many moments and many different principles in the film that Mr. Miyagi is offering him. And that's the one that we all remember, this, this idea of wax on, wax off, and gosh, doesn't he, you know, and paint the fence. Um, and I think there are a few things, there are a few principles that he learns from that. One is, is the wisdom of, of simply surrendering to the master, to surrendering to being coached and being coachable in that instance. And and I think his frustration and his tension comes from his ego's battle with refusing to surrender. And there is a point at that surrender comes, and of course that's when the whole flow of his smooth movements and his ability to just engage with engaging the martial art in the moment, and um, that's when that comes. Um, I think there's, I think there's also a principle of of being being aware that we don't you know there are some things we don't know and when we go to when we go to a, a master we don't like sitting in the unknown and that can be frustrating for us and yet the the wisdom of of pursuing the unknown of putting ourselves into those difficult spaces that can be incredibly generative as well. Okay. So that I like this notion of the willingness to surrender, that I have mm. to open up to both the unknown and my own discomfort and growth. Yeah. Okay. So, Julie, let's turn to what does it really look like when we're mentoring? Is there a particular process that a mentor should follow? Is there a sequence of events? I think, functionally, there is an underpinning process that if we, if we adopt it, and it's... Um, it, it bought, so we work with this in, in organization, and it's born from looking at what are the typical stages that a relationship needs to go through in order to be effective and in order to produce results. And when we look at mentoring in the context of organizations, we do have to take a slight um, adaptation of a purist archetypal um, mentoring view. So if you, you know, if you have 
Homer in the Odyssey and the original function of the mentor as the wise old man teaching the young uh, novice, you know, there are some adap- adaptations that need to be made to that role for mentoring to function effectively within the context of an organization. So that being said, um, we can still return back to, you know, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and start to look at, okay, if this is a journey that two people go on together, what is the function of this journey? What's the intention of the journey? And, and it leads us to, to map out, if you like, some key stages of um, setting up the relationship for success. So that's all about setting up clear expectations, mutual expectations, mutual understanding of, of what this, this relationship will be, what's the intention of it, what are the, um, the core behaviors and expectations within that. Um, and some of that might be predetermined by the organization helpfully, and some of it can only be determined by um, the two people that are going to work together. Um, I think there is that need to nurture that and, and foster that relationship to set out and get started so to, you know, to get to know each other properly, um, to start to encourage feedback and open exchange and dialogue not simply about the content and the, the professional stuff of conversations but also um, you know, about how things are going and how people are feeling generally within the relationship and what's working and what's not. I think there is some need to to sustain progress by reviewing, you know, by putting in structured reviews, by um, a little bit more formally exchanging feedback and, and starting to review results and outcomes. I think individually both parties can um, productively support the, the work that they might do in, in, the, in, in the relationship by working individually, say, um, with another mentor or by reviewing and reflecting for themselves what they're getting from the relationship. And I do mean both the mentor and, and the person being mentored. Um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a stage in the journey where it's right and proper that the two individuals start to look at how to complete this relationship. And I have no idea whether that be... Um, you know, 10 months down the line or 10 years down the line, but that will, that, you know, the, the gestation for the agreement of that will, will start from the outset. But there is, there is a healthy way to complete a relationship, and I think you have to prepare for that in advance. And that doesn't mean to say that, you know, two people might not know each other forever. It just means if there was an intention, if there was an original purpose and a set of goals or objectives for that relationship, then... Um, there is also a trust that functionally that will be complete at some stage. Um, and I think that's a healthy expectation for both parties to have as well. So I get the sense from you that there's a lot of upfront work in terms of identifying mm-hmm. our intention or purpose with this relationship and what we're going to do and not do and how we're going to do it. And then a healthy dose of reviewing progress along the way uh, to make sure things are on track. Yes, yes. And we um, we kind of provide people with tools and printed tools by which to do this. My my frustration in organisations is that in most mentoring schemes, this effort and expenditure is, is kind of front loaded in the and in this flurry of um, excitement about setting up mentoring schemes and having big launch events and everybody getting giddy around um, meeting each other. And of course, things. Things that aren't supported over time typically derail. And where these, where it hasn't, 
where the function of a mentor and mentee relationship hasn't been established clearly, where people haven't been allowed to add in their own um, their own requirements, their own thoughts, their own anxieties, and being supported through them. You know, sometimes the skills training needed in terms of, um, you know, a manager understanding what's the difference between this relationship and a managing relationship. What often goes wrong is when, when things start to get less clear and mentors have less um, clarity in terms of principles and tools and understanding by which to mentor, they simply start managing. And I'm sure you've seen this wonder in the work that you do. Um, manage, uh, mentors turn back into manager, managers when they start to get confused or, or um, feeling like they're not adding value in conversations simply because they haven't, they haven't had the clear expectations that give them the confidence to sometimes sit back when, when a mentor, mentee might be confused or might appear to need assistance and doesn't actually. Okay. I certainly see that every time I've worked with somebody who's trying trying to train a group of mentors to be prepared, uh, particularly in my work, it's around helping mentors of women in the organization. And there is a very blurry line between the mentor's role and the manager's role, mm. particularly around this whole notion of giving feedback. And the question I always get is, can the mentor, should the mentor, go to the manager for the manager's feedback? On the individual. I have a What's principle, your... whether we're coaching or whether we're mentoring, that I would never say anything to somebody about somebody else, that I wouldn't be willing to have them sit in the room and hear, or that they hadn't already heard from me. Um, and this is, the, this is what we encourage managers and mentors to do. I think a mentor has to be very wary, and I, and I can think of very few situations where it would be appropriate for a mentor to go to a manager, because in that instance, a mentor is, you know, might be aiming to try and fix a situation or have something happen, what we call strategize around a situation, try and... Um, get around the situation by influencing something else, it's an, you know, influencing somebody else or influencing the system in some way. If that weren't something that was openly discussed and supported by the mentee, I, I can't think of many reasons to do it. Okay, well, good. I'm glad to hear that because that's the advice I gave, that um, if your mentee is willing to go with you or to support that kind of conversation, go ahead, sure. but otherwise sure. not a mandatory requirement. Okay. So, Julie, we're going to take a break. But if you just have like three tiny pieces of advice for somebody who's a mentor, particularly this establishing the relationship, what are the three best tips you would give? I would say relax. Um, Trust that this is a journey you will both learn and develop from. And be open to that learning yourself. And find out what the true value is that you add in the relationship. You know, it might not be what you expect. And so it's important up front to go into real inquiry, both with yourself and the person that you're working with, to understand, you know, what are the stars that you need to navigate by, particularly. Okay. All right. Fabulous. With me today is Julie Starr. Julie's a specialist on coaching and mentoring. Her book, The Coaching Manual, is required reading for most people training to be a coach. She also has two other books written largely for in-house or excuse me, in-company mentors and managers, Brilliant Coaching, and The Mentoring Manager. We'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about this whole notion of coaching and the similarities and differences between the two. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Savvy business owners, learn how auspicious timing can have a positive influence on business decisions and strategies. You can achieve your goals while creating a competitive edge in your given field. Tune into Illuminating Feng Shui with host Kathleen Zamansky where classical feng shui and Chinese metaphysics work together to help you discover your strengths and use them at the right times. Tune in every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Julie Starr. Julie is an expert and thought leader in the field of coaching and mentoring. She's both written books called The Coaching Manual for Coaching Practitioners, but more importantly for our conversation today, it's about being a brilliant coach and manager, as well as mentoring within an organizational context. So we've been talking about a mentor, and I want to shift the focus now to coaching. So mentoring, Julie just said, is a journey that both the mentor and the mentee go on, that there should be a lot of upfront time talking about the purpose, the intentionality, the behaviors, the expectations, what are we going to do and what are we not going to do, and that it is a journey the two do together. So the mentor is learning as much as the mentee, and more importantly for the mentor, part of it is to get focused on what your real value add to the mentee and not try to become the manager. All right, now before I go any further, I want to say a word about managing and leading. To me, they are both the same ends of the same spectrum. You don't want managing without leading, and you don't want leading without managing, just as a word. Also, when I say coaching, I don't mean becoming a professional external coach. I mean coaching as a manager and as a leader. So with that said, um, Julie, when you think about, um, does coaching only take place with the direct manager? Or are there other things? Um, Coaching, no. Coaching is a conversation. It's a style of conversation, and it's a conversation that has a certain impact on the other person. So whether it's a manager talking to a subordinate, and obviously that's where the real traction in terms of performance can happen, whether it's a, a manager talking to a team member or a subordinate, or whether it's a, it's, it's a colleague, you know, a peer-to-peer relationship, or even we, we 
show people how to coach upwards. So it could be a subordinate coaching their manager in a conversation. I think these are very productive principles and behaviors and skills to operate from. Um, no, I wouldn't put bandage on this, the, the nature of these conversations at all because they're, they're incredibly supportive and incredibly generative. Okay. So, so you say coaching is a style of conversation. What distinguishes it from other kinds of conversations? That the conversation causes somebody to think through their situation for themselves, to think and act for themselves plainly, to understand their situation in a, from a, perhaps in a way that they hadn't understood it before, to gain some insight around it perhaps, and to engage with it in such a way that creates formative action. So it's the difference between t- being told what to do by a manager and having that manager support um, me to decide what I want to do. And it might not be quite as black and white as that, so that sounds like a, the difference between tell and ask, and sometimes it is the t- difference between tell and ask, and sometimes there are different stages in the conversation that have to happen, but essentially it's that I feel, as the person being coached, that I have been heard, my ideas have been valued, I have been given the space to think or inquire about that myself, and productively, I've had some sense of contribution towards the way forward, and that's very empowering for me because it gives me confidence. Okay. I want to just repeat this. It's largely about asking and not telling, though occasionally a telling might sleep in there. It's about the coach, the person who's being coached, feeling that they've been heard, that their ideas have been valued, that they've had the space to think and inquire, and they have a way forward, some next step actions. Yes, okay. certainly. Certainly. And I like, yeah, it's great. And um, when we look at the difference between tell and ask, that's when managers typically get very frustrated and can throw coaching out and kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and they'll say, okay, so I asked them what they wanted to do and they didn't know what they wanted to do, so this coaching thing doesn't work. I needed to tell them and I knew I needed to tell them and people need me to tell things. And what that manager hasn't been given is the flexibility, the dexterity to move between those two positions of I tell you something or I ask you something in a way that feels supportive to the individual being coached. So what I mean by that is when you ask me um, what do I think I should do in a situation and I say, I don't know, that's why I came to you because you're the manager, that you could then do something more productive than tell me so you could summarize what I've just told you and make an observation about that and then ask me a question. So you can see there, I've kind of looped back. I've moved away from being less directive by summarizing, by pointing, by giving an observation or even some feedback to me about the situation, still not telling me what to do, and then looping back into a question frame to say, okay, you just said you're having difficulties with the, you know, matching the figures for this year's expenditure, and yet there are three more people that haven't contributed. What else needs to happen before this is a, this is a definite issue? And then I can start to think for myself. So basically, you're, you're using behaviors that help a manager to sit on their hands a little bit in a situation, have them not just tell when, you know, when people don't come up with quick and easy and perfect answers, but you, know, you need to give people something that they can do between these two points of tell and ask. And in our, in our experience, it's the behaviors of summaries, 
um, observations, opinions, even advice before um, boldly telling somebody what they what they need to do. It's interesting. When I am doing training sessions teaching people how to give feedback, particularly around this whole notion of creating a stronger performance culture, one mm. of the things that I say to people is the moment you tell somebody what to do, you own the task of policing it. Whereas if you want yeah. them committed to do it themselves, you have to stop short of telling them what to do. And it's the same thing you're saying here is that there is, you know, we have the extreme of, well, what do you think asking? And we have the extreme of here, do this telling, but there's a bunch of shades of gray in between. Totally, totally. And it's that where the magic lies because it's that where the, the manager can feel like they're contributing towards the conversation rather than just trying to guess at perfect questions that will get, per, you know, what they see as perfect answers. And it helps them stay engaged in the conversation, but it also helps the other person to engage with the solution because they know that collaboratively during the process of the conversation, they've helped to build that solution, either by giving their thoughts about it, their, their opinions about it, um, or even coming up with, with you know, the way forward themselves. But certainly through a collaborative process of conversation, the individual being coached feels much more involved, more empowered, more supported, more valued. Um, it's, it's, it becomes win-win-win in engagement terms. Okay. All right, so if I'm turning this back into very specific action items for a manager who's trying to coach, here's what I've heard from you. One is to recognize it is a conversation, and it's a place yeah. where people need to think for themselves yeah. and to feel heard. We do have to move to action, but that's at the very end. And that as a manager, my tools to be using are listening and really focusing on the individual, summarizing what I've heard from that person, kind of the synthesis, if you will, making an observation about a situation or about a context or about what the coachee just said, offering a feedback or an opinion, and redirecting a question that gets the individual to think for themselves. As you have described it, that is a mechanic that displays the function of coaching. It's not, the, it's not the only way to coach, but certainly that sequence that you've described is a good routine for any manager to learn because it's progressive, it's, it feels like it's got flow, and it feels, less, it feels natural, doesn't it? So, because it feels like a dialogue. It feels like me saying, okay, so I've heard you say this. What's interesting about that is my observation would be this. What thoughts are you having now about this situation and what do you think needs to happen? That feels very natural rather than, you know, a, a manager trying to get the perfect question out, which is, you know, what do you think you should do at the perfect point in the conversation? So, yes, that, that's certainly... And sometimes coaching can simply be a, a, a great question or it can simply be a punchy question about, okay, I've heard all about the problem. What I'm interested in is what do you think you should do about it or what needs to happen or what are you proposing? So that's also coaching, but it, 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 deter, it, it requires a little bit more in terms of rapport and a little bit more in terms of the pace of the conversation being okay for the individual and then being ready to answer those questions. Okay. So in the first one sounds like a longer one where I listen and summarize and observation and feedback mm. and then redirect mm. a question. The second one sounds much more like stuff that would happen in the normal course of a day. So someone comes to you as a manager and says, I have this problem, blah, 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 blah. And the manager says, okay, I hear you, but what do you think we should do about it? Okay. Yes. And we have these two distinct, we have what we, we 
teach as offline coaching, which are these slightly longer conversations that happen, probably a scheduled conversation away from the direct operation, away from the workplace, perhaps in a meeting room or a water cooler or um, over lunch or something. And then we have what we call response coaching, which is coaching by a manager as a natural response to everyday inquiries and questions. So rather than hear a problem, fix a problem, that people are hearing the problem and coaching the problem. And there's a very simple uh, three-step routine which we uh, use, which, you know, it begins begin by listening, start to display um, an accurate or clear uh, description of the problem and then keep keep the responsibility for the solution with the other person. So then start to focus on, okay, what needs to happen? What are you proposing? Um, you know, the, the initial inquiry, and it can be a really quick inquiry, would be, okay, so what's really happened? What's, this, what's caused that? Um, what needs to happen? Okay, so what are you proposing? And it can literally be a simple three-question three set, if you like, that just enables someone to think, okay, so I'm trying to hand this monkey to my manager. The manager seems to be keeping it with me and then develop almost a, a, an in-the-muscle expectation that that's what's going to happen with the manager. So, so over time, what's useful about response coaching is I learn to only go with my manager when I'm really stuck because I, I have an expectation that I'm going to be coached through something. I almost start to do that myself. I almost start to you know, walk, walk over somebody's desk or start to pick the phone up to call and think, I know what this person is going to do to me if I ask this question. So I need to be prepared and actually, I think I know where this is going already. So it, it, okay. it, it might take a little bit longer in terms of that initial investment of time, but over time, gosh, do we see um, people, you know, managers' level of involvement start to raise and increase and get more strategic as these kind of irritating, repetitive, daily nags, you know, whines and, and, and silly inquiries start to disappear as people start to coach themselves a little bit. Yeah, I'd love how you say that because I certainly do hear complaints from managers and leaders that the kind of problems that are brought to them from their organizations are not, you're frustrated because you think that person should have been able to figure it out for themselves. And so in effect, you're saying, if I follow this responsive coaching process as a manager, I'm going to encourage my staff to do more for themselves and then come to me around the more strategic. Yes. Yes, and one okay. of the presuppositions that is critical to this being able to happen is that managers start to need to start to realise where they have created parent-child relationships in their environment. So we we have managers and leaders complaining that people aren't acting with emotional maturity, they're not responsible for themselves, why can't people think for themselves, why do I have to tell them everything, and surely this is obvious, and actually the cause of that is that they keep doing it. And for them, you know, for them to start to create more maturity around them and more resourceful responses and more empowered, um, a more empowered operation, they need to start to shift these relationships back to an adult-adult relationship, which which can be quite threatening for a manager when they have to kind of sit down in something that feels like a more equal conversation, and that that can be, you know, egoically quite uncomfortable for leaders. That, so this strikes me as a fairly profound statement, um, and I'm going to take it to a more practical uh, statement of what you just said. 
So as a manager, if I am frustrated that I don't have a lot of maturity around me, Mm. that people don't seem to be able to figure out for themselves how to solve problems, Mm. in effect, I have to take a hard look in the mirror because it's Mm -hmm. me that's created the dependency and I've created the dependency by telling what people what to do. I've never gotten them to think for themselves. I've trained them in effect to come and ask me. And so now the trick is to retrain, and I retrain by what you call um, response coaching, which is moving fairly rapidly from listening to the problem to asking people what they think they should do about it. Yes, and as we try and train train managers uh, to be leaders, we've been doing this for about 15 years, what we found in the early days was there was something, you know, we could give them the skills of listening and questioning and rapport and how to give constructive feedback, but there was something still missing about how essentially managers felt that they added value in a conversation. And, And typically, managers have been bred to feel that they add value in a conversation by fixing things, by using their expert knowledge and experience. Um in order to have somebody comply with what they think needs to happen. And it's all of that that needs challenging and unwinding and undoing and this principle of facilitation and for managers to realize that they can add so much more ongoing value by facilitating somebody else to think something through to reveal for themselves their own insights or wisdom around the situation and that over time that feels like a wonderful contribution to make and yes there has been a giving up in terms of having to be the oracle um, being the the go-to person for everything and and feeling that kind of egoic or self-justifying rush when you feel like you're the only person that that people can turn to or you know it's almost impossible to take a holiday because you know, you're so needed, uh, that, that essential quality of feeling like you're needed and valued, um, that can be quite challenging and tough for leaders to start to, to relax with. Okay, fabulous. Julie, it strikes me you have just absolutely given the premise of the radio show here. So if you go back to this notion of we spend years in our life leading as an expert who knows what to do and how to do it, and the job is basically, in effect, training people beneath you to do what you already know needs to be done or the sequence through which you would go through solving any particular problem. That sets up a leader who's much more likely to tell or to direct people in a very informed way about what needs to happen. And my value add for leading the team is because people come to me and ask me how to do something I already know how to do. So just as with the shift from the expert to the non-expert leadership style requires giving up having to be right and be on top of all the details, equally, coaching requires giving up my sense of being the expert, that the value I add is the knowledge I bring. And rather, the value I add is the discussion I facilitate. Wow, would that change how we coach and work, give feedback and drive performance in an organization? Okay, we're going to take a break. With me again is Julie Starr. She's an expert in the field of coaching and mentoring. The two books relevant for managers are Brilliant Coaching and the Mentor Manual, Mentoring Manual. When we come back, I want to talk about another step of this one, which is tightly related to what we were discussing, which is leading from the inside out, our mental models of ourselves and what that means when we're trying to coach and mentor. We'll be right back.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Julie Starr, an expert in the field of coaching and in mentoring. The two books are Brilliant Coaching and the Mentoring Manager. And Julie's website, if you're interested, is www.starrconsulting.co.uk. I know we were just talking about what coaching looks like when you're within the organization and you're a manager or a peer for that matter. We're making the point that there are really two styles of coaching. One is the traditional offline coaching where we have a scheduled time and it's a really deep reflection where I'm going to summarize and make an observation and redirect a question and get the person to really deeply explore. But equally, there's a thing called response coaching, which is really around everyday issues that come up for most managers. And the notion here is the manager needs to stop being the expert with the answers, who has the information, and see their role as a facilitating others to think in the ways that we solve every daily process. So that process is we're going to listen. We're going to make sure we have a clear description of the problem. We're going to leave the responsibility for action with the person. And we might ask a question of what happened or what caused this. And then we move right straight to, so what are you proposing? Now, at the end of that, Julie, I said, you have this notion that you lead from the inside out. What do you mean by that? Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a principle that 
the, our best leaders, our, our most inspired leadership comes from people that have centered and grounded themselves in this natural, authentic way of being so that there is an alignment between who they really are, what their core values are, um, you know, that all of that is lined up with who they're being in the organization. So there's no corruption of me trying to be a certain way for my environment. And, and yes, there's an accommodation of that, but there's no corruption of how I'm being in order to please or um, satisfy my perhaps needs of codependency or in order to avoid being... Um, exposed in any way that, that somebody has, has matured enough to think, okay, this is me, this is who I am, this is how I speak, this is how I relate to people, this is what's important to me, and this is who shows up day after day after day. Okay. So can you give me an example of what it means to lead from the inside versus from the outside? So if I'm leading from the outside... This is, this is still a, a kind of an idea that I work with all the time, but let, let, me, let me attempt to explain it in, in, in a way that makes sense for people listening. If I'm, if I'm leading from the outside, I'm always wary. I'm always externalized in my view in terms of my references about how I think I should be, what I think I'm allowed to do, what I think is okay here, being cautious and wary and self-editing either in what I say or what I feel I should do, um, in the exact coaching, the leadership coaching work that I do, quite often my conversations are to help leaders to declutter their thinking, their convoluted, complicated thinking around a situation that it has been um, cluttered and, and, and made more chaotic by consideration of my perspective, your perspective, his perspective, her perspective, you know, what will they think, what will they do, this happened. And quite a lot of the time, this pure simplicity that arrives from a simple inquiry in terms of what do you really think, what's really important to you here, you know, what would you do if you couldn't fail in this situation, what, if you, what would you do if you weren't unfettered by these false barriers or boundaries that... that arise when we look in this um, externalized view the whole time, then what would be possible? And, and the simple actions in, that flow from these powerful perspectives are truly transformative in, in the work that I see. All right, so I just want to reiterate three of those questions. So get rid of the clutter, get rid of all the thinking around you of what's allowed and not allowed and how somebody's going to react and not react, and get down to, one, what's really important to me as the leader, two, what do I really think about this situation, and number three, what would I do if I was truly unfettered by the organization, all the politics, or all the other dynamics? Those sound to me like pretty powerful questions. They are, and when you can, so I'll give you an example. There was a CEO that I was, I was coaching, and during the coaching conversation, but in the, very early on in the assignment, he said, my chairman won't let me lead. And he was convinced that the chairman was not letting him do all the things he wanted to do or to, do, to take the culture forward in the organization that he wanted to take forward. And what we got through inquiry was that was all subjective conjecture. It was all 
mind chatter and noise that he had this illusory um, image of the chairman sat on his shoulder. The chairman wasn't even in the same building. And he had this illusory um, Jimmy Cricket, if you like, on his shoulder, which was, you know, I can't do this and I shouldn't do this because the chairman was, of course, the ex-CEO, as, as often happens. So when we start to send to people around these questions, what we're having them do is lead more from the heart and less from the head because the mind is trickster. And whilst some of what you, you know, you've, you've described the approach might sound to some people as impractical and you think, oh, well, you've got to have due consideration in your context and sometimes there are regulatory boundaries. And of course, of course, of course. But certainly as a, as a principle, as a, as a place to stand, this, you know, what does my heart say? What, does, what do I feel? What's my sense of this situation? Is often what's needed to... to give birth, give rise to the innate wisdom that, that experienced leaders have within them when they can simply quieten the noise of a, of a cluttered, stressed, pressured, fearful, egoic, fixated mind. Okay. I, I certainly echo your sentiment. I see this every day coming and going, that people have convinced themselves something won't work or something has particular meaning or a person mm. thinks a particular thing or expects a particular thing, when often that is absolutely fiction. And frequently I find we can take very damaged relationships and turn them around quickly by just getting rid of the clutter, getting down to what do the two people actually genuinely really think and feel. Um, Sometimes it's hard to do without an external facilitator, but that's what the process is like. So that's what you're describing here as you're coaching with the CEO. I agree. I agree with what you just said. Totally. All right. So it's it's the simple make powerful, isn't it? It is indeed, isn't it? There's enough but complex. Simple would be a good thing. Let me come back to where we started. We were talking about mentoring and coaching, and we spent a lot of time talking about the need to get the upfront part of the mentoring relationship right, the expectations and so forth. Are the skills in mentoring and the skills in coaching different, or is it the same thing? Coaching skills, as we have packaged and wrapped them, are life skills, they're conversational skills. And yes, they've been bagged by the coaching profession, but actually before we, before we wrapped and packaged them as coaching, they were conversational skills. It's the skills of listening. It's the skills of reflection. It's the skills of inquiry and facilitation. It's the skills of, of building rapport and relationship, openness and trust. It's the skills of being able to give constructive feedback messages in a way that they can be heard. Um, and so, yes, Informed by those skills, any mentor would be a better mentor. What distinguishes a mentoring relationship is not predicated by those skills. So within organizations, they are certainly a nice to have. They are certainly something that will cause a mentor to feel more confident, more capable, and probably be more productive and effective in the conversation. But they do not define and distinguish mentoring. Okay. All right, fair enough. So the skills that I use for mentoring are going to help, but that isn't necessarily what yeah. I have to do for as a mentor. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Julie, we got three minutes. Before we wrap, I have to get yeah. you to talk about your book for young adults, Magic to Memphis. So give me like the one minute's highlight summary of this book. So I wanted to write a, a, a novel for young adults that would 
distill all of the, the wisdom, the philosophy, the life perspectives that have become so materially the substance of the work that I do within the coaching field. And I wanted to give them as an offering, as a, as a parable, if you like, in, you know, in the guise of a parable within um, a novel. So uh, Magic to Memphis, the subtitle is What If Your Life Was Working From the Inside Out? It's, um, it's a, a, a journey, a hero, another hero's journey, if you like, of a young teenage runaway who's living rough in the Midwest of America with just a pit bull terrier for company. She's living in a trailer. Um, her life goes from bleak to, to black. Um, she's run away from her alcoholic mother. She goes on a quest to Memphis to make it big in the music industry. And she has this journey that, that shows her how life genuinely works from the inside out. So what's going on the inside of us, what's going on on the inside of us is what's showing up outside of us. And, you know, if we are angry and hostile and disenfranchised, which she is, she, you know, she sets off that way, um, then we will see conflict all around us and we'll see disappointment and we'll see life not working out. And when we start to operate from different postures of seeking help, of trusting, of operating more from our interdependence, that's when her life really starts to take off and change. Um, so, yeah, a lot of fun to write, a lot of interesting conversations um, around that that spawn from that because obviously when you offer this, these truths and wisdoms in the, in the form of a story, it gives you access to a whole different realm of, of, of teaching and learning. Fabulous, Julie. That book, if you're interested, you have a young adult in your life, is Magic to Memphis. What if we lived life from the inside out? Sounds excellent. Julie, thank you for being here today. Julie is an expert and thought leader in coaching and mentoring. Her two books, particularly for this audience, are Brilliant Coaching, The Mentoring Manual, and her website is starconsulting.co.uk. Julie, I think the thing that excites me most about this one is the statement you made at the very end, that coaching skills are really conversational life skills. They're the art of listening, reflection, rapport building, asking questions, inquiry, giving feedback messages, and facilitation. If we master those skills, then coaching is easy. Thank you for being with us. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.